This morning, we're going to begin a new series. Uh, this series coincides with what Edda was talking about and what's in your bulletin, our Can We Talk Evangelism Outreach training. Uh, it's, it's both. It's training us to do evangelism, but it's training us to do evangelism all the time. It's not just to do evangelism on Sunday nights when it's scheduled, but training us to get to where we have a, a tool ready when, when we talk to people. It, 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 Can We Talk is the name of it, and that's really what it's about, is being able to just work the gospel into a conversation. Um, that it, it really is easier for us than we make it sometimes to be able to do that. Uh, I am... I mean, I fully confess that uh, it, it's a lot easier when God comes up to just, oh, yeah, me too, you know, and go on. But there's our opportunity. So the training is uh, to get us to where we are able to do that in our everyday lives. It, it is beginning with nine people. Uh, the idea is that it grows, though. We want to, we have to train leaders because each, there's a, each team has three people in it, and one of those people is a leader. So we have to train leaders in order to make more teams. So that's why we only have nine people this time. Here is where you come in, though, if you are not uh, currently a part of one of the teams. Two things we need. One, we need somebody to sit in the nursery for our two hoodlums uh, every Sunday night because Etta and I will both be involved, so we need somebody to come watch Jace and Janie Marie. We only need one. We trust you, uh, but we need you for the next six weeks while we do this training. Um, secondly, when we start going out, we won't go out tonight into the community. Uh, we will start that next week, but we want people here at the church praying. So if you can commit to come into the church between 5 and 7 on Sunday nights while we go out, that's what we're going to ask you to do. We want somebody to be here who uses texts on their phones so we can text somebody, pray for this person. This is who we're going to see right now. We send the text, the names written on the board, and who, the people who are here praying between 5 and 7 will pray specifically for that person. And then we can give any kind of updates that uh, lead you to, to pray as well. If you want to be a part of that, and I strongly encourage you, if you remember weeks ago, I said this is a, an opportunity for all of us to be involved, whether we're going out or not. So if you want to be a part of that, come up here at 5 starting tonight, because I want you to see, as the prayer team, I want you to see what we're doing and how we're doing it. So if you come tonight, you'll be in on that first session. You'll hear about what we're doing. You'll get a, a good idea of, of, okay, this is how I need to pray as they go out. And then next week, we'll start with the particular prayer group being here, you that come tonight. Next week, we'll have... Uh, the specific people for you to pray for as we go out. This series that I'm preaching over the next six weeks is the gospel. This is what our learners and some of our trainers will be learning over the next six weeks. This is the basis for what we are doing, the gospel. Uh, G-O-S-P-E-L, God's uh, character, the offense of sin, the sufficiency of Christ, the personal response, the uh, eternal, uh, I'm trying not to look, to look at this screen, eternal urgency and life transformation. We're going to cover those six topics over the next six weeks. We are looking in depth at the gospel. This uh, 
acronym comes from Ephesians 1, uh, 2, 1 through 10. So every Sunday you can turn there. We're going to be right there. Today we are looking first at God's character. And that we get from Ephesians 2, verse 4, if you want to go ahead and turn to that. But as we, as we look at the gospel, as we understand the, the, the gospel message, we, we've, we've had the gospel message now, the, the gospel mandate, for 2,000 years. Jesus told us what to do at the end of Matthew. Go into all nations, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to be with you every time you go out. We have that promise. We have that command, go, and we have the promise, I'll be there. My, my biggest fear, one of my biggest fears in evangelism is that I'm there by myself somehow. But that's not the case. God said, I will, Jesus said, I will be there with you. Every time we present the gospel, Jesus is there. Every time we present the gospel, we are either planting a seed, we are watering a seed, or we're harvesting a seed. Harvesting the fruit, whatever. Those are the three steps. And we may present the gospel over these next six weeks to somebody who's never heard the gospel. And they say, you know what, I'm, I'm just really not interested in that. Okay, that's fine. But we've planted a seed. We may get there and find that it's somebody who's had some questions. And we present the gospel and, and they say, yeah, you know, I've thought about it, but, but I think I've got more questions than right now than I have answers. And, and I'd love to talk to somebody later on or something. We've watered. Or we may knock on a door where somebody else has already been there. Maybe not literally at their door presenting the gospel, but the gospel has been presented, and they hear it this time and say, yes, that's what I want. That's what I've been searching for. I knew there was something, but I didn't know what, and you came to my door tonight and you told me. We may plant, we may water, we may harvest, but it doesn't matter what the end result is. It matters that we fulfill the command given 2,000 years ago. Now, when Jesus gave the command, he had in mind, or at least the disciples, I would say, had in mind of how that was going to work. And we can see it best in the life of Paul, uh, how he worked as a tent maker and traveled the, the, the known world at the time by ship. Slow, arduous process, spending 18 months here and six months there, and planting churches, and, and, and doing those kinds of things. Well, those methods, our, our modes, our models, our machinations, our means, like what I did there, all the M's. I had to work for the last one, though, means. They, those may change. How we do it will change. We go Door to door, and, and, and I know some of y'all are already getting a little weak need. Oh, i got to go knock on somebody's door I don't know. Well, not to start off with, we've got a stack of cards of people who have visited our church. It's going to be somebody who has actually come to our church first, and we're just going to visit them. They came to visit us, so we go visit them. That's all. So it, it starts off pretty easy. Now, hopefully what happens is they've moved. So we get somebody else to invite and to hopefully tell about Jesus that we weren't expecting. And that, see, that's one of those surprise things that, that you're hoping, oh, this is going to be easy. Oh, no, it's not. But you're there now, so you can't get out of it. So you've got to go ahead and follow through. See, that, that's the way God works. 
but our, our methods, you know, do we do block parties? Do we do uh, the wild game hunt, hunting expos? You know, there are all kinds of things that we can do to share the gospel, but what does not change is the message. We change how we do it, but we never change what we say. We never change what we're telling them. And that message is the gospel. That message is not First Baptist Church. That message is not as, as closely and as dearly as I hold some doctrine. The message is not creationism versus evolution. The, the message is not uh, we're going to be raptured before uh, the tribulation and, and then uh, or, or after the tribulation or there's not going to be a tribulation or there's going to be a thousand year reign or there's not. That's not the message, though we may have particular views. The message is, is not any of the things that we argue about in the Bible. The message is the gospel. Now, there are people that will argue about the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? Is Jesus the only way? Well, okay, we're going to stand on the truth that Jesus is the only way. The gospel message has not changed. But we, we're not arguing about other things when we take the gospel. And the message must be taken. Um, I saw a quote this week by a guy named Ray Comfort, who is uh, uh, an evangelist in California. And I, I wish I'd gone back and written it down now because I'm not going to get it quite right. But he said, expecting lost sinners to show up at church on Sunday is like expecting criminals to show up at the police station. And that's what we expect, right? We, oh, well, you know, they'll know, they know they need Jesus. They'll come to church. No, they don't know they need Jesus. And no, they're not going to come to church. Any more than the criminal that says, you know, I really need to get my life straight. I'm going to go spend some time in jail to fix it. Is not, he's, they're not going to do that. We have to take the message. We have to take the gospel. And then this morning, we're going to see that the gospel begins with God. It doesn't begin with us. But it doesn't even really begin with Jesus. It begins with God the Father. Yes, they're the one, the same, distinct, and have always existed, but we're not going to get into that this morning. It begins with God. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to start, go ahead and start in verse 1 and read through verse 4 this morning. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked, according to the ways of this world, According to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. Verse 4, here we go. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, Dot, dot, dot. It goes on. We're stopping at the end of the sentence. That's a fragment, not a complete sentence. I understand that. But that's where we're going to stop today. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love that He had for us. Paul begins by telling us what we were. Remember, he's writing to a church, he's writing to Christians, and he's saying, you were these things. You were, you were bound by the devil. As, as the, the video said beforehand, we were in chains, slaves to sin. That was you, Paul says. 
that was you, but God. You were lost. You were broken. You were on a dead-end road, but God. You were a child of wrath, he says. By nature, it is who we were, by our very nature, children of wrath. We deserved hell, but God. See how he has set God up different from us, separate from us, but God. God is the complete opposite of us, and I don't even think that covers it. He's not just the opposite of us. He is completely other than us. In all of our weakness, in all of our sinfulness, God is none of that. In all of our rebellion, in all of our hurt, in all of our brokenness, God is none of that. We are us. Everything that, that resulted from the fall in the Garden of Eden, everything that we are by nature, but God is something else. And that's what Paul tells us here. But God. Salvation started with God. We needed it. We couldn't get it. But God. God, he goes on to say, Paul does, who is rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. Now, rich is relative, right? Rich is, is relative. I don't mean rich is your relatives. Maybe they are. I don't, but, but rich is, is relative uh, to someone in a third world country in, in South America or, or Africa. Our poorest in, the, in, in, in our country right now, the poorest people here, are wealthier than the vast majority of people around the world. Folks around the world that live on a dollar a day, $365 a year, to us, that's extremely poor. But to them, folks that live at the poverty level, and I don't even know what the poverty level is now, $15,000, $16,000 a year is the poverty level, maybe. That's rich. If you gave someone in those countries $15,000 a year, somebody better at math than me, tell me what the percentage is when you go from $365 to $15,000. That's a lot of percents increase. See, rich is relative. In, in certain areas of our country, wealth, you know, you may be wealthy if you live in the house that has electricity. You may be wealthy if you, if you own more than one car. See, rich is relative. But when we see that God tells us that he is rich in mercy, we need to understand that based on every wealthy person we can imagine, every, every uh, um, mode of wealth, every, every vision we have of who would be rich, God is still richer. And he's not just richer in the cattle on a thousand hills, though he is. He's not just richer in that he owns everything, though he does. But when we think of rich, we can't come up with exactly how rich God is. And then when we think of his mercy toward us, we cannot imagine how much mercy he has toward us.
We think we're merciful sometimes at our $365 a year in mercy. And then we see that God is like the Bill Gates of mercy. Multi-billionaire in mercy. Or maybe I should say the U.S. national debt in mercy. Multi-trillionaire in mercy. And we think we're doing good at our $365 in mercy per year. Or our $14,000 a year in mercy. Rich is relative. God has enough mercy for every one of us. God has enough mercy for everyone who has ever lived. God, who is rich in mercy. We are dead in our sins, but God is rich in mercy. Let me define mercy for you one more time. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. We're children of wrath, verse 3 says, but we don't get that. We deserve wrath. Romans tells us, we deserve punishment, we deserve death, but God says He is rich in mercy. He is rich in not giving us what, a, what we deserve. There's an Old Testament word that, that captures this better, and it's a word that we have not uh, been able to really define perfectly. In the Old Testament, it's the word chesed, and you have to clear your throat when you say it, chesed. That's the way they do it. It shows up a lot in the Old Testament. We translate it loving kindness, because loving and kind didn't quite do it. We had to put the word together and say loving kindness. It is mercy stemming from love. It is something chesed is only, I believe, only used of God. Never of anybody else. I mean, we can be merciful, but we can never have the kind of mercy, the kind of chesed, the kind of loving kindness that God had. And every time this word is used in the Old Testament, it's used in a situation where those that, uh, about whom the Bible is speaking deserved wrath, but didn't get it. Uh, maybe the most visible uh, picture that we can come up with is it is used uh, in Jonah when it talked about the Ninevites deserved wrath, but God had chesed, loving kindness, mercy, and he did not destroy them because they repented. That is the mercy that we're talking about. Something we can't understand, something we can't fathom, but something that God is rich in, that this is God's nature to be merciful to be rich in mercy. This is who God is. See, we're not describing, you know, I am uh, 6'2", 200 pounds, and, uh, you know, but that's not who I am. That's just, that just describes me. I have brown hair, but I am not brown hair. I have brown hair. It's a description. I have, I have green eyes, but, but I'm not green eyes. That's just a descriptor. It describes me. Mercy does not just describe God. It is, a, it, is his, it is His very nature. God could not be unmerciful if He wanted to. Well, that's an interesting you know, philosophical question. Could God be unmerciful if He chose to? He can do anything. We're not going to get into that today. Go home and hurt your brain over lunch thinking about that. But not this morning. This morning what we're going to say is that God could not be unmerciful if He wanted to because He is, by His nature, merciful. Rich in mercy. 
But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he has for us, that he had for us, this great love reinforces that mercy. That Old Testament word again, chesed, loving kindness, loving mercifulness. See, it's really two sides of the same coin here that he is both merciful and loving. There was a scene in, and I think I've talked about this scene before, in the movie Schindler's List. Um, Oscar Schindler, the the German uh, um, tycoon uh, factory owner during World War II who set out to save as many Jews as he could, uh, did so in many cases by buying them from, from concentration camps or paying them not to take them, take the the workers that he knew, Uh, ended up saving about 1,500 lives uh, over the course of World War II, uh, went bankrupt doing it. Uh, It was was completely financially broken by the end of the war. Um, One of the things in the movie, now this is in the movie, remember, whether it's historically accurate or not, I don't know, but it, it paints a really good picture for us. He, he's talking to the, the commandant of a concentration camp. And this commandant was particularly ruthless, as, as most of them were, and would just, you know, it, it was sport for him to stand up at, in his house on the second floor and shoot the, the Jews in the concentration camp just, just to kill them. The, 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 the most insignificant slight earned death at these concentration, this concentration camp. Oscar Schindler told him one day, he said, you know what? Sometimes real power is found not in the punishment, but the forgiveness. And of course, at first, the, the German officer, that's weakness, that's stupid. But then he thought about it, and, and later on in the, uh, uh, the movie, just a few minutes later, we see him at a scene, some kid did something um, trivial, insignificant, turned over something, you know, made a mess. And whereas he would normally just kill the kid, he, he went, you know, he thought about it and, 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 and just dramatically said, I pardon you. And he was, oh, that's great. He, he liked the power of that. Now, a few scenes later in the movie, he shot the kid. Um, because that's what they did. But the point is, he was merciful, right? We would call that mercy. He did not give what he felt the kid deserved. But what was his motivation? Did he love the kid? No. A few scenes later, he shot him. He... His motivation was power. I feel powerful when I forgive. I feel powerful when I pardon. I feel powerful when I show mercy. It makes me feel good. That is not the God we serve. The the God we serve is merciful because He is loving. He's loving because He is merciful. And love is a part of His nature as well. As a matter of fact, the New Testament tells us that God is love. Not just a descriptor of him, but it is him. This is a description as well of the kind of love we are to have among believers. Loving kindness, great love. 
That's what we're to show each other, by the way. Now, the word used here for love is agape. But we need to define agape here more as divine love rather than uh, unconditional love. Don't be quick to go to unconditional love. So that's how we usually define it. And I want to I hold us back there for just a second because we don't want to say that God's love is permissive. And sometimes unconditional can come across as permissive. Oh, God loves me whatever I do. Yeah, he does, but it's not a permissive love. It's not God loves me so I can do whatever I want to do. It's God's love is so great that it overlooks when we've trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior or looks beyond when we haven't trusted Jesus yet as our Savior, our sin. Overlooks in the case of we have Jesus, looks beyond when we could accept Christ uh, when we are still uh, when we have not accepted Christ yet. So it's not permissive. It's not unconditional, Michael, do whatever you want to and I'll still love you. But it is divine love that says, I know what they are. He knew we were children of wrath and loved us anyway. He did not want us to be children of wrath. He did not want us to be slaves to our sin. He did not want us to continue in our sinful lifestyles, but yet He loved us anyway when we were still sinners, Romans says. That's the kind of love God has. But is that all? There are a lot of people that will want to stop there and say, well, God is love, so I'm good, right? God loves me, and they're going toward that permissive love. Well, that's not all the Bible says, because if we go back to verse 3 real quick, that under wrath phrase should grab our attention. Whose wrath? My mama's wrath? Well, it's bad, but it's not like God. Uh, Etta's wrath? It's, it's rough, but it's not like God. A woman scorned? You know, no fury-like, no wrath-like. A woman scorned? Uh, not, as, not, not like God's. This is God's wrath that we are under. This is a uh, righteous anger, righteous punishment. So God is truly love. God is truly merciful. But God is truly wrathful. There is a wrath we have to deal with. It is His nature. Well, why? Is He just an angry God? Is He just ticked off all the time? Is that who he is? Is that his nature? No. His righteous anger, his righteous punishment comes from his just nature. He is just. He is completely without, um, lost the word, uh, huh? Prejudice. Thank you. He cannot be swayed one way or the other. He can't be bought, he can't be bribed. He's not an unjust judge. He's not one who, well, okay, if you, you know, you know, the promises you make when you pray, God, if you'll just do this, then I'll do that. He can't be bought by your promises. He is completely just. And there are a few verses that show us that. Proverbs 11.21. Remember, going back to this wrath, how is this wrathfulness from God? Proverbs 11.21 says, Be assured that the wicked will not go unpunished. Who punishes them? Well, we do, to some extent, right? We have laws and government and civic set up to, to, to do those kinds of things, but ultimately, their punishment is from God. Ecclesiastes 
3.17. You can look these up or you can look them up later if you don't believe me. I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. Oh, we just went from God uh, punishing the wicked to we're all going to be judged. Well, Paul makes that clear as well. Our, as Christians, our deeds are going to be judged. Burned up and, and what's left over is what goes to heaven with us. Our, our reward, our jewels, our uh, wood, hay, and stubble gets burned up. Our gold, silver, and precious jewels get left. Those good things that we've done. Ecclesiastes, he, he will judge the righteous and the wicked. Leviticus 11.4 tells us how God can judge. How can He do it? How can He do it fairly? How can I stand before God and say, God, it is completely fair, completely just that you are judging me? I mean, well, I mean, He made me, so that kind of gives Him the right, right? I mean, he, he made everything, so that should settle it for us. But just in case it didn't, Leviticus tells us, For I am Yahweh your God, so you must consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am holy. Holy, sanctified, set apart, other, like we talked about at the beginning, opposite, of us. That's the God we serve. That is the God who set up the gospel. God's character. And then the last passage we can look at to understand how God can send His wrath on us is 2 Thessalonians 1.6. And it just says, God is just. Or some of your translations will say righteous. Works the same way. God is right. So, if God is just, God is holy, God is set apart, God is righteous, and God is loving, and God is merciful, then when God comes forth and says, I have a plan for you who were in, lost in your sin, slave to sin, um, what does it say? We were... Dead in trespasses, according to the ruler who exercises authority of the lower heavens, we were caught by the devil. The spirit now working in the disobedient, living among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out inclinations of our flesh and thoughts by nature, children under wrath. That's who we are. Were. But, but when we were, God came along and said, my justice does not allow you to get away with what you're doing. You are in rebellion against me. Civil War, I'm a huge Civil War fan. Uh, just the history of it and, and reading it, I, I, I tend to read you know, about the southern armies more than the northern ones. Uh, they had some good ones too, though. But that was a rebellion. Now, we can get into all the politics of it and everything. I'm not. Regardless of, of, of what your view of it, it was a rebellion. And it was the North's right, when it was all over, to punish the South severely. As a matter of fact, that is what happened in Reconstruction. Reconstruction. 
Had Lincoln not been assassinated, the South would be a different place today because he had a good plan to rebuild the South and those who took charge afterward did not. But when Robert E. Lee uh, surrendered on April 12, 1865 at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia, surrendered to Grant, Grant had the option to take Lee into custody. Um, he could have had him killed, uh, 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 executed as a traitor, but he didn't. As a matter of fact, the story goes that Grant wouldn't even take Lee's sword, which was customary. I mean, you surrender, you give your sword. It, it was symbolic, and Grant wouldn't take it. And a lot of that was just respect for the man because he was such a great general. But it was also because there was mercy involved. Lee's army, they were given food. If, it, if it, they could spare it, horses. Keep your guns. Go home. Go. Go. Jefferson Davis, who served as the president of uh, the Confederacy during the, the Civil War, and a number of other uh, political, uh, governmental figures could have been, and they were tracked down. I mean, Jefferson Davis ran, but they didn't go through trials. They weren't executed because there was, there was mercy involved. But they could have been. Why? Because they had rebelled. Their rebellion was minor compared to the rebellion that we perpetrate against our Creator and God. So how much more do we deserve death? How much more do we deserve punishment even than Lee and Davis and others at that time? Well, a lot more. And yet, God is merciful. God is loving. And God sent a way out. God's loving side, God's merciful side said, I want to fix the sin problem. God's just side, God's righteous side, if he has sides, and I'm, I'm playing the two against the, each other and it doesn't work that way, but in our minds maybe it helps us to see it. God's just and righteous side said, but I can't just let them get away with it. I can't just wipe the slate clean. All right, everybody's good. You all get to heaven. Somebody has to pay for the rebellion. That somebody that paid for our rebellion was Jesus Christ. Jesus paid for our rebellion. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us is a child of wrath at some point. Every one of us has been or currently is a child of wrath because we're all sinners. But while we were yet sinners, Paul later tells us, or rather, actually, the next one that we should do is, since we are sinners, the wages of those sin is death. That sin is death. We are sinners. We are children of wrath, right? Ephesians 2, 3. Death is our payment. But God had a different plan. 
God had a plan in Jesus Christ. You see, you see, the gospel begins with God. God had a plan. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. While we were yet sinners, Romans 5, 8, Christ died for us. And God proves His love, His loving kindness. He proves His, that two-sided mercy and love. Because when I was still in rebellion, I don't know how it worked for the Civil War. I don't know if Lincoln had planned all along to pardon the, uh, the generals and... and uh, uh, Davis. Don't know if it had worked that way. Uh, I don't know if Andrew Johnson, Andrew Johnson was kind of a puppet president after Lincoln was assassinated. Things just didn't go well. Uh, but don't know if it was the plan all along. And I know there were a lot of people that were against it. God had the plan all along. Even while we were still in a rebellion, even while we had taken up arms against him, God had the plan to pardon us. But that plan involved us admitting our rebellion. And to some extent, that's how it worked in the Civil War as well. Romans 10, 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. There are a lot of people I don't think deserve to be saved. I'm just going to throw that out there. But it's not my choice. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. Every person here, every person you know, every person you don't like and wish that person would just go to another town to live, that person deserves hell, but can, if they will, call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Romans 10, 23, or 10, 9 rather says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the gospel. It starts with God. But at some point, we have to make a decision to follow him. And this morning, if you have not made that decision... If you have not trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I pray that you will do it this morning. As a matter of fact, you can do it while I pray here in just a couple of minutes. We, we call you down front to make it public. You do or you don't, you don't. That doesn't affect your salvation. We do that because we want you to make it public. The Bible says that we must confess Jesus before men, Right? If we deny him, he'll deny us. If, if we're not willing to stand before others and say, yes, I trust him, then, then there's an issue. But we as Baptists do that there. That is our public profession of faith, the baptistry, where we get up there and we are buried with Jesus in death symbolically and raised with him in new life symbolically. That's our public profession. So this morning, you can trust Jesus right where you're sitting without ever coming up here. Now I want to hear about it. I'd love for you to talk to me after church. Call me sometime this week. But I'm going to pray here in just a minute. And if you've never accepted Christ, today is your day to do that. There's no magic prayer. There, there are no perfect words. It's just you calling on Jesus, admitting that you're a sinner, 
place in your faith and your trust, Jesus, I believe that you are the only one who can save me. So this morning, Jesus, I want you to save me. That's it. And then you follow him. That's that life transformation we'll talk about in a few weeks, but we're going to talk about every day, every Sunday before then. So pray with me. Lord, I thank you this morning that the gospel is clear. God, I thank you that you began the gospel. You started and said, you know what? I love them. They deserve the punishment, but I'm going to figure out a way like you had to figure. And I know you didn't have to do that, but you had the plan all along to save us. God, I, I pray this morning that if there's someone here this morning that doesn't know you as Savior, that today they would do that. And God, I, I pray that they would lift up a prayer to you this morning, something like this. God, I know I'm a sinner, that I am deserving of wrath, but this morning, Lord Jesus, I want you to save me. I put my faith and my trust for my eternity, for my forgiveness, for my right now, and for my tomorrow in you. Lord, I ask that you come into my life and save me. Lord, transform my life by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, I give my life to you. I hope they pray that this morning, Lord. I hope you work on hearts to do that. And I ask that you would work on every heart here this morning. Those who have already accepted your son have prayed some prayer like that. Not just words, but Lord, a true consecration of themselves to you. Lord, that we may all be willing to take the gospel that must be taken to those who don't know it, who haven't heard it, and are bound for a sinner's hell, a Christless hell for eternity because they've never heard it. God, work in hearts this morning. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I don't know what your decision is. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, if today was your day of salvation, then I'd love to know about it. Like I said, if you don't want to come up, talk to me afterward. Maybe you have, have made that decision before, but you need to follow in obedience. You need to make that pub public through baptism. Well, let's set that up. Let's do that. Maybe you are not the gospel sharer that you need to be. I'm not. I need to be more diligent about sharing the gospel. This morning, maybe God's working on you that you need to change your life somehow. Some things need to be fixed, and you need to come and pray at this altar. Give some things to Him. Whatever you are being led to do this morning, I'm here to pray with you if you'd like. The altar is open. But as we sing, as we stand and sing, you come and you do business with God today.